The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, John Leifer, has spent more than 30 years seeking to understand and influence the healthcare industry as a senior healthcare executive, consultant, and writer. An outspoken advocate for patient rights, he is often cited as an expert on health policy issues. Leifer is the author of The Myths of Modern Medicine, The Alarming Truth About American Healthcare, and is here to talk about his latest book, After You Hear It's Cancer, A Guide to Navigating the Difficult Journey Ahead. Welcome to Health Watch, John Leifer. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Tell us what prompted you to write a book about cancer, given that your first book was more about health policy and, and around medicine in general. Well, I decided that uh, it might be nice if I wrote a kinder and gentler book than the first one, which was a pretty sharp rebuke of the healthcare system. And I also wanted it I really wanted to focus my energy on a piece that would help patients, something that would guide them as they go on this extremely difficult journey with a tough disease. So uh, you start out uh, after you hear it's cancer with a, a good place to start, obviously, is, is how to find the right doctor. And, and finding the right doctor is, is probably more complicated than people think. I think it's extremely difficult. Um, as I was working on this book, my wife developed cancer. In fact, um, I basically refashioned the introduction to the book to begin with Lori's story. And even as a, an oncologist, my wife is a radiation oncologist, it was difficult for her to know where to turn, who the best doctors were. You know, there's just not, uh, there's not a consumer report that we can pick up and quickly see the ratings of oncologists in our area. So, so where do you suggest that people begin? Well, I think people can begin by looking for just certain um, signposts that the physician has met minimum qualifications. So, for instance, board certification. That's not to say that there aren't good doctors without board certification, but I think board certification in you know uh, the given area, medical oncology, radiation oncology, et cetera, is almost, for me, a prerequisite. Uh, that would be a starting place. Knowing how long the physician has been in practice may be important to some people. Um, trying to gain information from people who are knowledgeable in the healthcare community. And then I think perhaps most important of all, interviewing your physician before you decide to hire him or her. So going to the first appointment and really treating it as though it's an interview. Is this somebody that you're going to want to accompany you on this journey? Well, uh, John, one of the things that I appreciated about the book was your emphasis on that uh, on that point, on participating in, in that phase of your journey as an active person in the process of making decisions, but also sort of sussing out whether your doctor is going to get defensive if you ask them questions, um, potentially pointed questions, to know whether it's the right course of action for you. I think it's essential that you be collaborative with your physician, and your, your physician does not merely tolerate it, but absolutely welcomes it. So my advice to patients is that be upfront with your physician, indicate that you would like to get a second opinion, and uh, ask for his or her advice, and also consider uh, seeking out resources that may not be recommended by your physician. So for instance, if you happen to be in a city that has a National Cancer Institute recognized 
Cancer Center may be a good place to get a second opinion, particularly if you have an advanced or difficult-to-treat cancer. So one of the other complications, I think, is uh, the ways in which uh, profit motive intersects with cancer care. And and you cite in, in after you hear it's cancer that 58% of oncologists consider how much money they will receive when determining a treatment option for a patient. And there are ways in which cancer services have a financial incentive either for for individual physicians or for hospitals and, and clinics. So how, how would you recommend people uh, sorting through potential conflicts of interest that are pretty common? David, this is a tough one and a very touchy one. And I hammered on this point in my first book, The Myths of Modern Medicine, and talked very specifically about a urologist, as an example, who own linear accelerators for the treatment of prostate cancer and then self-refer their patients to those linear accelerators. When that happens, the physician receives not only a professional fee for his or her services, but they also receive a technical fee for the use of the facility and the equipment. And in the case of radiation for prostate cancer, that might be fifteen or $20,000 per patient per treatment, or per, per treatment, complete treatment. So it's, there, is, there are very strong economic incentives in healthcare for some physicians to steer patients to specific types of treatment or specific facilities. And it is absolutely the ethical obligation of those physicians to disclose the conflict of interest. Um, you know, I see this in our market, and I see physicians re- referring patients to their radiation center, forcing them to drive, you know, 30 or 40 minutes each direction, even though there may be facilities that are much closer, in fact, even in the patient's backyard. So it's, this is a big issue, and it's not – I don't want to just pick on the urologist. I can tell you that this is present in many different domains in medicine. We're talking today with author and patient rights advocate John Leifer about his latest book, After You Hear It's Cancer, A Guide to Navigating the Difficult Journey Ahead. Uh, and, and then there's also some regional differences that in terms of what sort of procedures or, or treatment are done. People might be surprised that depending where you live, you might actually get a different protocol than somewhere else in the country. Yes, there are tremendous geographic variations, and there's kind of an interesting story behind this, and and I won't tell it in length. Um, I can tell you it's it's recounted in my first book, but there was a physician named Jack Wenberg who many, many years ago, in fact, more than three decades ago, discovered a variation in the rate at which children were having tonsillectomies for tonsillitis between two different towns and realized that children in one town were three and a half times as likely as the children in a town 10 miles away to have surgery. Well, over many years, this research continued, and the what became the Dartmouth Atlas is a research repository that looks at the geographic variations in care across the country. And for instance, the rate in mastectomies for the treatment of stage one breast cancer varies by as much as fivefold. So where you live can have a huge impact on how you are treated for a given disease, even though uh, there's really no rational explanation for that uh, variation. Well, uh, John, does does your 
your latest book deal with when when discussing like how to figure out getting the best medical care, finding the right doctor, figuring out the right treatment protocol? Does the new book engage with uh, the screening controversies? You know, some screening tests like for colon cancer are pretty uncontroversial, but obviously we know now that. Uh, there's a lot of debate around both prostate and breast cancer screening, when to get it done, if to get it done, what age to get it done, and what type of screening to get done. Yes, I definitely talk about that um, at, at length in the book. And think about it in two ways. Let me start with the screening process, which is uh, we, we, I talk about uh, prostate cancer screening. And that prostate cancer, uh, though it can be a very aggressive form of cancer in rare instances, it's usually indolent, which means that it's slow growing. And so it's almost fair to say that most men will die with prostate cancer, not necessarily of prostate cancer. And so the message to people who had been diagnosed, screened, and then diagnosed with prostate cancer, because the minute you're screened and there's the slightest hint of a problem, there's going to be more testing, usually a biopsy, and before you know it, you may be diagnosed with a low-stage prostate cancer. Our advice when that happens is slow down. Take your foot off the accelerator. You have lots of time to think and get the requisite opinions about your options because your best option may well be surveillance for watchful waiting to see what happens over time. Now, with breast cancer, it's complicated. Uh, it has There are a lot of issues that come into play, including a, a person's anatomy and the density of their breast tissue and, and other factors. But once again, I think the principle of slowing down, taking your time, and really trying to discern what your options are, getting as much information as you can, is vitally important. And I'll add one more note to that, which is there's a great resource um, available at nccn.org. And that resource is uh, basically uh, the publication of the standard methods in which cancer at different stages is treated. So standard pathways for the treatment, for instance, of stage one or stage two breast cancer. And these pathways are written in consumer-friendly language. I'm not saying that they're simple to understand, but they, they can be understood without a tremendous amount of health literacy. And I think that they can give a person a good indication of what their physician should be recommending. And of course, if their physician is deviating significantly from these standard pathways, then perhaps they should be asking the physician why. And again, that, that website is nccn? Yes, it is. Um, nccn.com? nccn.org. .org. Okay, great. Uh, another another area that you you discuss in and after you hear it's cancer is how to what sort of questions to bring up for your doctor around treatment and and that website sounds like a good place to start maybe to develop some questions but you also stress the point of of knowing whether what's happening is is uh, whether you have a cancer that's curable or treatable and what the difference is can can you just parse that out for our listeners a little bit. Yes, and, and before I do that, by the way, NCCN stands for National Comprehensive Cancer Network, so people can also search for it that way. Okay, great. Um, I think people need to understand the goals of treatment, and you've got to be a little careful here about how much information you really want to receive from your physician, because patients will quickly say, well, I want to know everything, 
Well, do you really want to know everything? For instance, do you want to know the statistical probability of you surviving more than five years? Some patients do, some patients don't. Some patients think they do until they find out. But I think what's essential is that you get some indication from your, from your physician as to whether the primary goal of your treatment is curative, it's to control your cancer, or it's to provide comfort. The meaning of cure is obvious. It's the eradication of the disease from your body. It will no longer, you will no longer have cancer. Control means that the intent of treatment is to slow the progression of the disease. Sometimes diseases can be slowed for years, even decades. In fact, I recount uh, the story of a patient who, in her 20-year battle with lymphoma. So again, for, for some patients, cancer becomes a chronic disease and they live many happy, productive lives with it. The third category would be comfort. And these are, this is generally for people who at the time of diagnosis already have an advanced form of cancer that's difficult to treat. And there it's, you know, we don't want people operating under false assumptions about what can and cannot be done for their disease, but we also want to strip them of hope. And so it's always, there's always a balance there between being encouraging but also providing accurate information to the patient and his or her family. So uh, an, another area, John, in the book that I, re I really appreciated was your focus on nutrition and exercise in, in while getting treated and after. Uh, that's not something you often hear a lot about in conventional uh, approaches, but in fact, um, malnutrition is not so uncommon when getting treated for cancer, and then that will in, in turn lead for, to uh, less optimal outcomes. Absolutely, and this is more your area of expertise than mine, David, so forgive me for, for whatever ignorance I demonstrate in answering your question, but um, nutrition is incredibly important and vitally important for certain diagnoses, such as head and neck cancer, where... Post-treatment, patients find it virtually impossible to eat for a period of time until, you know, some of their, t their tissue is healed. Um, I would say that nutritional counseling is, is important in virtually all types of cancer, though. And, um, you know, one of, the, one of the key determinants of how a patient fares uh, under treatment is not just what the treatment modality is and the cancer's response to it, but it's what doctors refer to as their functional status. So overall... How resilient are they? How, how well are they doing physically? And nutrition is a very important part of that. Um, exercise, of course, is, is important. And it's important not only for its impact on the body, but its, but its impact on the mind as well. And we know that many cancer patients struggle with anxiety, depression, and other uh, appropriate reactions to a life-threatening or, or very devastating disease. We also know that exercise can be a very effective treatment for anxiety and depression if it's mild to moderate. So, you know, there have been many studies done that have looked at the relative, you know, the comparative effectiveness of antidepressants, SSRIs, for instance, versus exercise. And exercise usually equals or trumps the antidepressants. And we also have some research on some cancers with exercise being uh, having some preventative aspects. That's you're absolutely correct, and that's a very important point. Thank you for mentioning it. Uh, and and then also, 
you you mentioned nutrition and the importance of avoiding malnutrition, but uh, losing weight and not being able to maintain weight during um, cancer treatment is also not a good uh, indicator of of um, outcomes as well. Like it's important to maintain somebody's weight. Um, do you discuss um, strategies to get calories when maybe you're you're feeling nauseous or or otherwise um, not wanting not able to keep down food, for instance? Yes, we you know we definitely talk about this in the book. Um, you know, my wife was very helpful in um, pointing out ways in which patients can anticipate problems with nutrition in advance, particularly the head and neck patients, and we give several examples of that in the book. Oftentimes, these patients um, insist that they will get through treatment without a problem. They don't need any kind of advanced preparation for nutrition, such as something called a PEG tube, which is a tube that is inserted uh, to provide supplemental nutrition that they can't take by mouth. Um, And then they find out after undergoing treatment that indeed they need help. They need it desperately. Um, I've spoken with with patients who, uh, I spoke with a gentleman who was a strapping 215 pounds and by the time he finished treatment, he was 156 pounds. Um, And he talked about shivering and how incredibly difficult it was just to even get off the sofa. So yes, this is a very, very important issue. Again, we're talking today to patient rights advocate and author John Leifer about his latest book, After You Hear It's Cancer. Uh, another section of the book, John, is is how to manage the financial toll of cancer. Uh, even people with pretty good insurance probably are going to end up with uh, a significant financial cost. Tell us a little bit about the resources that you discovered and you discuss in that section of the book. Well, the financial toll can be tremendous, and we know that the cost of cancer is a uh, factor underlying a great many personal bankruptcies in the United States, which is just a a very, very sad statement. And this problem, I think, is only going to get worse, particularly when we look at the cost of the new drugs that are being brought to market. Several years ago, there was an analysis done of uh, the new chemotherapeutic agents that were introduced. I believe it was in 2013. And... 12 out of the 13 drugs cost in excess of $100,000 per treatment. And of those drugs, only two improved increased life expectancy by more than two months. So patients receiving those kinds of therapies are incurring tremendous expense. There are a lot of other factors that are contributing to expense, including when, for instance, oncologists, independent oncologists become employees of hospitals and their rates go up because they are billed in a different fashion by the hospital. In terms of how you address it, there are a couple of ways. One, make your doctor aware of it. Um, He he or she should be aware of the fact that you are financially struggling. Oftentimes they can recommend alternative treatments that have virtually the same efficacy or effectiveness but cost less. They can also be quite empathic and try and direct you to resources that will be helpful, including potentially financial counselors either within their clinics or within a hospital or within community agencies. Uh, Social workers also fill this role in terms of helping identify sources of funding, alternative sources funding to offset cancer costs. And they can at times, for instance, direct patients to um, pharmaceutical funding that is used to uh, offset costs. 
So uh, we we started the program. Uh, this has gone very very quickly, actually. But um, we started the program talking about the conflicts of interests around uh, conventional medicine and and cancer care, uh, and maybe we can end the program to talk a little bit about uh, complementary medicine. You, of course. People probably are aware that with cancer care also, there's plenty of people in, in the alternative medicine community that are um, also exploiting the desperation of, of people who have uh, potentially terminal illness. But there are legitimate um, roles for n- natural medicine in um, in a complementary role with regards to cancer care. Can, can you talk about some of the things that you discuss in the book? Yes. Uh... I think complementary or integrated medicine plays a very important role in, in cancer treatment, but I think it needs to be approached with, with a degree of caution and also with collaboration between the complementary providers and the allopathic or traditional medical providers. As a general rule of thumb, um, I would tell a patient that there's very little to worry about if they're not ingesting something. So those modalities that are external, and by that I mean things like uh, everything from massage therapy to aromatherapy to Reiki to I I could go on and on, um, bring very little danger and, of course, bring the the promise of hope of uh, better quality of life, of pain relief, the tachypuncture of minimization of of nausea uh, or, or pain relief. So I think some of these modalities have proven in well-executed studies to be very effective in addressing the quality of life and addressing side effects associated with cancer therapy. And they may offer more. Um, I'm just not versed enough in the science to go there in terms of making claims about their efficacy and actually changing the trajectory of the disease. Where I draw a line is, is when people begin to ingest substances. And the reason for that would be I think they need to be cautious. Um, we know, for instance, that some of the compounds that are manufactured abroad, particularly in China, can be contaminated with heavy metals or other compounds. Um, we know that there are certain compounds that are simply toxic, and we know that there are other compounds that interfere with the mechanism with which chemotherapeutic agents or even radiation therapy work. So this requires... Um, having a very trusted complementary medicine physician who understands these issues and an open and receptive Western or allopathic physician who understands the virtue of combining modalities. Right. And that's not going to be something easy to find everywhere. I know here in in Portland, probably also in Seattle, uh, there's a lot of longstanding relationships between naturopathic physicians who focus on cancer care and oncologists where they're coordinating care together for patients here um, and know the things that both sides feel comfortable doing together. You are blessed to be in an enlightened part of the country and vastly more enlightened on these issues than the Midwest. Yeah, I can't speak to the Midwest, but it was interesting, like you mentioned, for instance, the Chinese herbs uh, and the cautions of anything from China in terms of regulation, but you also cited in, in the book that Chinese herbs have been associated in studies with reduced side effects, increased quality of life, and improved survival rates across cancer sites. But, of course, that's going to matter where you're sourcing your herbs, what herbs are being used, and what treatments you're going to be getting done. But there are even uh, complementary physicians who are working on 
uh, supplements that are chemotherapeutic agent specific so that you're only taking certain things when on a specific chemotherapeutic agent. So it can get pretty complicated and specialized when you, when you get to that level. You're right. And, uh, you know, the, those of us that are, that are immersed in the field, such as you, you and me, we understand that, um, Western medicine has always had a, almost a monopoly on the um, claims to the scientific manner for, in which diseases should be treated. And therefore, you know, complementary medicine has made great strides in the last 20 years, but it has even greater strides to make over the coming decades. And hopefully we'll see that in cancer care and in other areas. So in our final minutes, John, uh, do you have a website and um, any final thoughts you want to say to our listeners today about the book? Well, what I would thank you. What I would say to the listeners is uh, people increasingly live long, productive lives with cancer, that it's a very difficult diagnosis when you first hear it, um, and it's natural to be emotionally overwhelmed. The most important thing that you can do is become an informed patient and collaborate with your doctor, find physicians with whom you can collaborate, and also be sure that you have someone at your side who cares a great deal about you and will be your companion on this journey. If you'd like to learn more, uh, please go to the website. It is www.afteryouhearitscancer.com. The book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and a variety of other websites. And um, I wish patients well with their journeys, and hopefully they will have very good outcomes. Thanks again for being on Health Watch today. Thank you very much. We're talking today to author John Leifer about his latest book, after you hear it's cancer, a guide to navigating the difficult journey ahead. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Stay tuned for Madness Radio.